Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Our subject today, racial bias. It's going to get a workout next week at Webster University at its third annual diversity and inclusion conference. There is a full agenda including hate speech and hate crimes, the criminal justice system, gender in the media, and unconscious bias. That's where our focus will be on today's program. Joining me in studio are Nicole Roach, Associate Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion and Senior Director for Community Engagement at Webster University. Kenneth Pruitt is Director of Diversity Training with the Diversity Awareness Partnership, and Katrina Salama is Education and Training Manager with the Diversity Awareness Partnership. Thank you all so much for being in today. Nice to have you. Good Thanks to be for here. having us. Nicole, I'm going to begin with you. Unconscious bias uh, seems to define itself, but how would you describe it? I would describe it as um, it's an unconscious feelings as well as judgment that one has toward another person or a group. Um, Again, it influences the feelings and judgments that you have. And um, we make it very complex, but it is that simple. How is it really different from good old-fashioned straight bias? Um, bias is that that is more intentional, more um, you, you know and you're aware that it is something, it's just, I don't like you. Um, and when it comes to unconscious bias, it is more of um, based off of my past experience, my upbringing, different things that influence and I may or may not realize, say, for instance, um, when you're an HR practitioner and you're reviewing resumes and say, for instance, I see a certain zip code on the resume, I'm going to pass judgment or I'm going to have some type of feeling that may conjure up within that causes me to not want to maybe call this person or to say, hmm, they may not be what we're looking for. They may not be a good fit. Kenneth Pruitt, is unconscious bias, do you think, fairly common? It's 100% common. If you are a human being with a brain, uh, like we like to say at DAP, then you have unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's. I think that's a really important claim to make. I think un- we can hear the fact that we have unconscious bias and hear it as an indictment, as an accusation, uh, instead of a scientific fact, which I think is a good starting point to mm-hmm. sort of uh, accepting kind of the outcomes of that. Uh, Katrina, is that something that we can recognize in ourselves? do you think? Absolutely. I think it takes a lot of practice. And I think the reality is it's very hard to recognize in ourselves because bias is so embedded in how we think and what we do and how we interact that so much of it goes unnoticed that it's going to take a lot of intentionality behind wanting to um, notice when it's there, how it's there, how it's impacting the people around us. Well, how, how do we go about doing that? How do we do that self-analysis? I think a very good first step is just addressing that it's there and recognizing that it's there for a purpose and a reason um, and seeing it as both a good and bad thing. I have a lot of biases and unconscious biases that allow me to be a very effective, efficient person and allows me to make decisions very quickly, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, But I also know in certain situations I'm more susceptible to using bias. So that awareness alone allows me to stop myself in the moment and think, what is the narrative I'm building behind this interaction that may not be true? Um, So I think it's going to take a lot of intentionality and just realization that this is going to be hard and take a lot of energy. Nicole, I was going to say, it seems to me that this is easier said than done. It is, very much. Um, And there's, you know, if you sit here and Google, there's a lot of 
um, backlash in regards to is unconscious bias training even worth the effort? And I'd say yes, because as Katrina was alluding to, um, we have to have those conversations. We have to have the exposure to the opportunities to be uh, introduced to what unconscious bias is. And then to piggyback off of Kenneth, it everyone has it. And I believe we go into this whole topic um, on the defensive thinking that we're being called out, yet we all have it. It's just a matter of learning how to manage it and to identify it. Kenneth, how do you, how do you train against it? That's a great question. I think uh, to Nicole's point, and she knows this in spades working at, uh, at a university in an institution with so many different moving parts that has so many different constituents, training alone will not uh, make unconscious bias go away. Um, re- some research shows that actually doing unconscious bias training and not providing other resources, follow-up resources, and contextualizing that training within a broader kind of multifaceted inclusion program can actually backfire. So um, we train usually in a couple of hours or so, but really encourage organizations to follow up with participants, to, uh, to work on other things beyond just training. Katrina, I wonder if this is an issue that is uh, getting worse rather than better, given the highly polarized society we're living in today. What do you think? Well, I think that that's a really difficult question, but I think um, I think I'm finding that people are more resistant to the idea because tensions are Resi- so high. Resistant to the idea of of what of being biased of being bi- or okay. having stereotypes, yeah. or um, I think in the conversations it is very much framed as being a defensive thing. If you have bias, that means you're admitting to being racist or mm. sexist or um, something along those lines. Where what we're trying to do is really inform people that you actually take back a lot of your control in your behavior when you're aware of your biases. Mm. And it's not a label. It's a just it's an understanding. Um, so I do think in some ways it is it is more challenging because there's a lot more, um, at least I'm seeing a lot of defensive attitude towards the topic, um, but I know my experience is very limited. Um, so it's just a matter of trying to work with the way this kind of topic and this issue has evolved in our society. Nicole, what are you seeing? Particularly, I'm thinking now of the, of the, campus, of the campus environment. So I will <clears throat> say that we have anyone who's been on a, a campus college campus understands there's many layers. Um, There are many stakeholders. There are many um, individuals who have influence and impact on moving the needle, if I could use that term, and when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And what's interesting is that um, while our students are learning how to um, use their voice, they are, in fact, using their voice. And I have had a very um, eventful tenure in this role, <laughs> if I could use that word. <laughs> However, it has been very, very um, rewarding because while the students are learning, we get a chance, we being the adults and the the faculty member and the administration and the staff get a chance to also participate in learning what those needs are, but also to revisit what it is that we thought was important, because oftentimes we have discovered um, that you can build something as leadership and as administrators, but is that with what you're building meeting the need of today? Mm -hmm. And so we've had to step back and take a, a some assessment of some of the um, strategies and the um, 
tactics and and the trainings and all and then the follow up making sure it's not one and done and being consistent is what we've learned. So it has been a journey, but a good journey. So you have all these different voices, but collectively we're able to get movement. We're able to evoke change and um, see that things are progressing. We're not there. There is never an arrival, but the, the work is being done. I've got to ask you, what has been so eventful about your, your tenure, as you put it? <laughs> I said myself There was right. this election that happened, Don. I don't know but, if you heard about that's it. Right. right. Pardon? The 2016 election, I think, was a really, uh, a really big turning point in how we have conversations uh, in public around these topics. And I think... Um, you know, I, I just also want to draw a distinction here in our conversation between unconscious bias, which is kind of our topic on the table today, and conscious biases. Right. Um, talking about conscious biases, I think, is notoriously difficult. Talking about unconscious biases, we can actually go to the science, we can go to the research. But I think when we admit that we have unconscious biases, I think some of the resistance that, you know, you're asking Katrina about is that once I admit it, I have these unconscious biases, I, I am bound to do something about them right. if I live in a community where folks are trying to hold me accountable for my actions. And, you know, I think many of us, myself included, our default is to uh, to pull back away from that accountability. But, but isn't bias bias? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> conscious or unconscious, it's still bias. Well, I think uh, – so, for example, when we uh, begin our unconscious bias trainings, we do an activity where we have folks look at images, images mm-hmm. of people of different races, different sexual orientations, different genders, and ask them what their quick responses are. Our brains tend to process these images in less than a second. Um, that means our brains are making decisions without us being necessarily aware of them. Um, and I think that can put us all at ease. But I think that's different than saying, I don't like people of this race. I don't like people who have this particular um, sexual orientation. So that, to me, is the distinction. And I think it's important to draw that distinction. Uh, Kenneth, uh, Katrina, Kenneth mentioned the election as being uh, – that's kind of what I was getting at a little bit earlier when I asked about, you know, in the, in the uh, polarized community that we're living in today. Uh, do you sign on to that as well? Yeah, I I do think that that was a big turning point in the work that we do. And I think it made us really have to think about um, how we're saying the things that we're saying and how we're doing it in a way where um, we're really practicing this idea that we have to listen to one another, um, regardless of what our belief systems are, um, so that we can really spread this message in a way that people are hearing it. Nicole, back to you again for that Eventful. Eventful. (laughs) (laughs) Kenneth jumped in there and said it was the election. Is that what you're talking about? I mean, it's just anything that happens in the world, and I will say the world impacts what's happening on college campuses. So we're talking all the way back to Ferguson. We're talking about, Mm -hmm. um, from Ferguson to to right now, to today, to Florida, Mm -hmm. the, 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 those who lost their lives in Florida. So all of that in between impacts what happens on college campuses. And what's unique about Webster University is because, yes, we are housed in right here in St. Louis, Missouri, in Webster Groves. However, we have campuses throughout all of the United States and abroad. So that impacts all, like every moment of our, um, when our doors are open and closed, because they're open somewhere. I want to stick with this for a moment because you mentioned Florida. And the young people in Florida are reacting somewhat differently than has been the yes, case in the past. Yes. And I think a lot of people are I- encouraged by that. Uh, again, I'm taking you back to the, your younger group, the, the campus crowd. 
do you think that they are different from the from the uh, students of a few years ago, five years ago, ten years ago? I would say yes. What students today are involved. They want to be at the table. They want to know what's going on. Um, and if you don't, they're going to remind you um, as leaders within those institutions. So, But then they also have unique ways of approaching some of the, the problems and the opportunities that are before us. And with those in leadership, it's been, um, as I said, it's, that's why it's been so eventful, but yet rewarding because we get to learn also from the students. And as long as you're open as leaders to uh, understand that you don't, we don't have all the answers, but yet together, collectively, being inclusive, um, we can arrive at some better options. Katrina, do you think that it's easier to identify and eliminate unconscious bias in, in young people than it is older people? I don't think necessarily. Um, I think that because this is such a complex thing um, and concept and idea, that regardless of, of who you are, where you are, how old you are, um, socialization is very strong. The messages you're receiving around you are, are very strong. And we're we're in a unique time where we're receiving messages in so many different ways that it does it complicates things. Um, and it's, it's also easy to isolate your ideas and your beliefs. Um, so I don't necessarily believe that that's the case, and I think it's actually maybe even more challenging just considering the way we utilize information these days. Kenneth, any thoughts from you on that? No, and I think it's important to name that, you know, certainly I think young people and uh, a lot of experts hopefully would agree that grow up with more diversity in their environments, growing up in their families, they're exposed to more kinds of diversity, but they would test with just as high levels of unconscious bias as, as anybody in the studio. So um, while I do think they are exposed to more, so perhaps they may be more open to the conversation. They're used to uh, being exposed to those kinds of conversations, perhaps more than some of us growing up. Um, they It takes just as much work for them to work that out of their system as anybody else. Mm-hmm. Our subject is unconscious bias today, and we're going to continue that conversation in just a moment. I have to take a break. We are talking with Nicole Roach from Webster University and also Kenneth Pruitt and Katrina Salama with the Diversity Awareness Partnership. Back to continue the conversation. If you'd like to be a part of it, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you would prefer to send a tweet, do so at stl on air. Back in a moment, this is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Now back to our conversation with uh, Nicole Roach, Kenneth Pruitt, and Katrina Salama. Kenneth, let me come back to you. When we as individuals spot what we think is bias of any sort in someone else, what should we do? I think the first thing to do is uh, build relationships. Trust goes a long way, and it is much easier for me to see unconscious biases in others than it is in myself. Uh, So the first thing I need to do is establish trust. And I think when we do make mistakes, when we do say things, do things that are reflective of unconscious bias, we need to be able to trust the people around us to call us out in order to improve and do better next time. 
So I think that's kind of the first step is is relationship. Community is at the center of so many solutions to these problems. Yes. Katrina, what would you or do you do when you when you recognize it in someone else? I think evaluating the situation is one is really important to also think about when somebody identifies bias because it's not always a safe space for somebody to call somebody out. Um, but I think to really in terms of evaluating what the space is, what the safety level is, and what the relationship is, then to kind of develop a solution as to how you're going to address it. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, oh, I think there's a better way to say that or do that. And a lot of times people are very open to that. Um, but it's it's also a very conscious effort in not drawing out defensiveness in the other person. Um, sometimes it takes a lot of work in thinking about how you're going to do that. But I think being intentional about not triggering defensiveness is a good way to bring up that topic or conversation. Nicole, how about you? What, if, if, if someone uh, identifies himself or herself in some way as being biased, what do you do? I, I echo Kenneth and Katrina. Um, for me, it is truly about relationship and um, understanding what the situation, because every situation is different and the relationship with an individual um, is going to be different. However, um, rewording or providing a different way of looking at something or uh, making a recommendation um, in a graceful way is a way that I normally approach such matters. You're African-American. I am. Have you experienced a bias being directed at you? And if so, how specifically do you handle it? I have to answer your question. And for me, I will address it gracefully. So say, for instance, if someone comes up and has some type of um, off-putting comment or exposing some bias that they may have, um, for me, it's a matter of um, acknowledging their truth. And then I share my truth in regards to like, okay, I I understand you. I, I hear you. And here's my thought process on that. Um, considering the role that I am in um, at the university, I have um, had to learn to be graceful at all times, mm-hmm. even if someone is having a moment and they're on 100. It's a matter of making sure that, as Katrina just mentioned, that you're not provoking um, and bringing someone to a place of feeling defensive, but to bring them to a point to where we can have conversation. Mm-hmm. Katrina, you appear to be of Hispanic background. Am I correct on that? Palestinian. Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Okay. I imagine that uh, you have you have uh, perhaps run into this kind of a situation too. How how do you deal with it? Um, I think for me, I I will admit I haven't always handled it well. A lot of times it's easier to um, try to ignore. And a lot of times you're in a situation where it takes a second or two to even realize that it's happening. Um, So I want to just address that first. We're not always going to handle it in the best way. But in times where I felt like I have handled it well, um, it's just a matter of correcting in a way that I find to be um, true to myself and my identity, but also isn't, again, triggering that that defensiveness. So sometimes it is as simple as a correction um, or just stating why what somebody has said or, or did wasn't okay. Yeah. Kenneth Pruitt, young white men are not uh, ex- exempt from experience bias. Have you, and if you have, have you dealt with it? That's a great question. Um, Not nearly as much as my peers and colleagues who have other identities, for sure. sure. One story I do tell in training sometimes is I moved to St. Louis uh, in 1995 to become an undergrad at WashU. 
And my accent from being from Tennessee was a heck of a lot thicker than it is now. And I always felt like I took the first few minutes after meeting somebody to explain um, that I did, in fact, grow up wearing shoes, that I did not marry my cousin, uh, et cetera, and to break through a lot of stereotypes that exist about um, Southern folks. So um, while it is important to name, yes, we do all experience bias, it is also important for me to name that I do have a lot of privilege in most situations. Mm -hmm. And that puts a lot of responsibility on me to uh, make room for those who do not. Right. We have a caller who wants to get into the discussion. Let's bring in Dan. He's calling from Maryland Heights. Go ahead, Dan. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I would like to know uh, whether implicit bias is the same as unconscious bias, and also um, are the implicit bias that are available online worthwhile? Who would like to take that? Thanks for your question. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, yes, mm-hmm. implicit bias and unconscious bias are the same thing. Um, folks who do a lot of work and thinking about this stuff and perhaps know more than we do tend to use the term uh, implicit bias. But in everyday conversation, unconscious bias, yes, is the same thing. Hopefully you're talking about the implicit association test, Dan, which is at implicit.harvard.edu. Those tests are very short. They are very free and can gauge your level of bias on lots of different topics that we've been discussing today. I would say as a caveat, make sure that you don't take it and um, stay alone with your results. You're going to get a result you don't like eventually, and making sure that you're connecting with other people to use that as a platform for conversation can be really, really helpful. Well, what kinds of questions are, are asked in these surveys or tests? I'm going to pass it to my colleague, Katrina, who talks about this test with a lot more dexterity than I do. Um, Well, the purpose of the test is to just gauge how quickly or see how quickly you can respond. Um, So it's trying to see how quickly um, you react to placing a certain person with an identity into a category. Um, So you're not necessarily answering questions. You do answer some demographic questions. But outside of that, um, it will show you um, two pictures. So either a picture of somebody who is black or African-American or a picture of somebody who is white or Caucasian, and you are supposed to, as quickly as you can, place them into an assigned category of words. And then that will switch, and so it will compare how quickly you can do so, um, and then it will give you a result based on that. I would imagine that this kind of uh, research has changed over the years, has it? I mean, to my knowledge, they've been been doing it for a couple of decades now. Yeah, pretty consistent. So, And they're always looking to fine-tune, et cetera, so... I have an email here from uh, Jeffrey, and I, I, I'm assuming this is a fairly common uh, kind of uh, observation. He says, I'm 50 years old. I remember my sixth grade social studies teacher saying, all Puerto Ricans are lazy welfare recipients. I carried that unconscious bias into my adulthood until I found myself working with several Puerto Ricans. To this day, I'll never know why my teacher believed that about a certain group. But the lesson for me is to examine how and when I am judging through bias. That, that sounds fairly typical to me. I mean, those things are ingrained from a very, yes, very early yes. age. Yes, and again, back to those influences that um, impact us. Um, And you mentioned, Katrina mentioned earlier about um, how our upbringing and even as a young person, we're getting, we're inundated. And then we look at at even now as adults. I mean, we're sitting here, we've got, you know, you have tweets coming in, emails coming in, phone calls coming in, all these different things that are impacting um, our thought process at any moment. Um, And that's throughout our day. And we're just sitting here in this same room. Um, so can you imagine 
you know, as we grow up, all that we have been exposed to, um, it makes a difference. You know, this this can be so insidious. So you're growing up in a family, you're not aware that the family is, let's say, racist. You don't know that, but you grow up in, in this sort of background. It seems to me it would be extraordinarily difficult in adulthood to pull away and pull back from that. I mean, can it realistically be done? I think we have a lot of work to do in our community that is so segregated. It's so easy to go about your day and not bump into or um, much less have a meaningful relationship with people who are not like us. So. Mm-hmm. And just to build off what we've been saying in the email, I think exposure is a huge piece. So once you are aware of a bias that you have, you do have to intentionally say, how can I build a relationship with someone who might actively fight against the bias that I have? Because in your very limited experience, um, you're not likely reaching out to those who will very well fight against the biases that we've accumulated throughout our upbringings. What what role does media play, Nicole, in all of this? Or, or, Or does it have a role? Yes, it has a role. Yes, it plays a role. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, there's good, bad, and in between when it comes to media. Um, going back to there's so much um, that, again, that we are exposed to. However, I believe as we diversify the the faces and the bodies that are behind the media and those media outlets to control and to bring different perspectives and points of views, um, that's where we need to do some some more work because it's not the media that's the issue. It's those who are behind the, the, the cameras, behind the mics, behind the boards, all of those different outlets. Um, but when it's just one point of view, that's all we get. Um, and as you said, you can you can have these biases, and as we keep talk, saying, you know, you're not aware of some of them. We all have them, but when you have a more diverse group who's behind any of those uh, platforms, the message can be different, and the impact can be different. Well, Katrina, there's the media, and there is social media, oh. and so, <laughs> and this is a a whole different ball game now, and in, in, in recent years. Because people can get out there and say anything they want and be totally anonymous. This this yeah. would seem to me just creates another level of problems. Do you see it that way? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that um, it's very easy to take the humanity out of somebody and an identity when you don't have to be accountable for it. And so media can be a very, and social media can be a very harmful place where people put very hurtful ideas out there, um, but know that that it's okay because no one will know that it's them. Um, And that's what we keep pointing back to the importance of community and relationships where you have to actually be accountable for what you say. And the more closely tied you are with that person, the more face-to-face you are with that person, the more likely you'll think about what you are actually saying before you say it. And and I think it's important if I may, just to say also that um, I want to make sure we don't demonize social media, too. Social media is a tool, oh. just like anything else, and can be used for good or for ill. Look what it's doing in Florida right now. For right, absolutely. Those kids, yeah. um, and I mean, you know, after the death of Michael Brown, I found a lot of community online and on social media and through a lot of practice was able to have really robust, difficult conversations full of disagreement on social media. So I think uh, using it well and using it poorly has everything to do with the user and not necessarily the tool. You know, uh, one of the things I think we have to be careful about, I, I think there's a tendency to think of bias uh, solely in terms of racial yes. bias. Correct. But there are so many different uh, avenues, if you will, or elements that come into it. And I think the discussion that uh, is taking place in the country today concerning the LGBTQ community, community that that is 
opening up a whole new avenue, if I can put it that way, for, for bias. Uh, you're running into this, I'm sure, at the uh, at, at your organization. Sure, absolutely, and I think you know that sort of um, inclination to fall into not only talking just about unconscious bias related to race, but falling into the black-white binary we fall into in our region. Uh, racial diversity is a heck of a lot more complex than that, too. When we talk about bias, usually what folks like like us, diversity, equity, inclusion practitioners, mean is affinity bias. So who's in my group, who's outside of my group, and my brain's ability to quickly determine that allows me to process thousands of decisions that I have to make in any given day. Mm. Um, but there are all kinds of bias that, as Katrina alluded to earlier, are very, very helpful for us throughout our day. Yeah. Uh, Katrina, going back to your, your group, the Diversity Awareness Partnership, uh, and, and training that you do. Is it one-on-one generally, or do you do it on, on a group level as well? Generally, it's a group. So we like to limit our group sessions because we want it to be as interactive as possible, but also we know the constraints of um, going into a different organization and budget and all of those sorts of things where we wouldn't necessarily be able to just do one-on-one trainings. Um, we do that as well. But our, um, sometimes it's really helpful to have a group at that number so that we can actually draw on the experiences and the perspectives of the people in the room. And it's not so much a lecture or a workshop, but it's more us helping to facilitate a conversation of a diverse group of people or not diverse group of people to talk about some of these issues amongst themselves. Kenneth, I would think that would be difficult, however. People might be reluctant as part of a group to really come forward or Call it shyness if you want. Call it just reluctance to emote true feelings. Yeah, and I think um, kind of what Nicole was saying earlier about uh, – well, actually, both of the other guests talking about being aware of power dynamics in the room. I mean, that's that's very important. Sometimes when we're having – when we're setting up trainings with particular organizations, we have to make sure that um, the boss's boss's boss may not necessarily be in the room and people Mm -hmm. feel more at liberty to be honest. And I think that, again, leads to – um, that robustness that we're always trying to lean towards. Yes, Webster University has mm-hmm. used diversity awareness partnership for years. Um, and with our experience with them, it has been um, quite positive because of the formula that they're discussing in regards to having a smaller group. Um, and then it's very intentional. So there is some pre-assessment that takes place, then um, programming actually delivered, and then follow-up. There's even uh, resources that may be provided um, so that, again, we're not doing a one-and-done, but there's actually next steps. Not necessarily always that DAP has to come back, Diversity Awareness Partnership has to come back and facilitate another uh, round of training. But, however, there is something and tools that, um, the individual who's leading that group um, will be able to move things forward and not just have it in the, the day that Diversity Awareness Partnership leaves. Our, our time is beginning to wind down, and I want to uh, talk just a little bit about your event next week. Yes. yes. Uh, and, and, you know, what exactly is is it designed to do, and who is eligible to participate? Yes. So on <clears throat> next week, on Wednesday, February the 28th, and Thursday, March 1st, Webster University will host its third annual Diversity and Inclusion Conference, and the theme this year is Elevating the Conversation. And we will have, um, during these two days, um, a full session of um, breakout sessions, not breakout sessions, but sessions, and um, teeing everything off will be um, an opening uh, conversation with Dr. Donald M. Suggs, 
where he'll come and um, engage us on his experience and his journey and his participation in the movement. And then we have a number of other uh, notable guests and individuals from the community at large are welcome to register. And you can register by going on to webster.edu forward slash conference. And with that, um, or just go to our main page at webster.edu. And um, it is open again to the community at large. And Diversity Awareness Partnership will be facilitating one of those trainings. We, we will uh, put the information on our website awesome. at sclpublicradio.org. In the time we have left, I, I, I mentioned earlier on that among the things, among uh, other subjects, uh, aside from unconscious bias, you're going to be dealing with hate speech and hate yes. crimes, the criminal justice system. And one that caught my eye is gender in media. Yes. Just, just specifically, if you can, in a few seconds, tell me what that's going to focus yes, on. Yes, so we have one of our um, a dynamic professors, full-time tenured professors, who will be presenting on um, women and men in the media and the impact um, that media has on our perceptions of uh, where it comes to roles, um, biases, and um, opportunities, or lack thereof. And with that, it's the first day of March, which leads us into the Women's History Month. So we thought it would be strategic in opening the ceremony or the um, event with those. In, in 15 seconds, is there anything specific about gender and media that uh, you're concerned about? Um, it's a new day for us as women to understand that we really do have the power and we really are um, making headway in regards to um, those roles that we initially were um, in, in boxed to. Great. Sounds like it's going to be quite a conference. Yes. I want to thank Looking you, Nicole Roche of Webster University, for being with us, Kenneth Pruitt and Katrina Salama with the Diversity Awareness Partnership. Thank you all for being with us as well. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.